All right, good morning, good morning. How is everyone? Anybody ready for Christmas? All right, it's the Christmas season. Hey, let's give it up to the decorating team this year. Didn't they do an amazing job? So thankful for them. Man, this place looks absolutely red. No, beautiful. Looks beautiful. I want to encourage you to pull out your message notes. We're going to continue our series uh, entitled Because of Bethlehem. We're taking a break in the Gospel of John. Uh, We have been working through the Gospel of John, but Christmas season, I always try to do kind of a Christmas series and try to bring us back to the manger and uh, the Christ child. So today we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We're going to look at verse 9. Definitely going to be sprinkling in quite a few other verses. I want to encourage you to pull out your message notes. These are going to be extremely helpful for you uh, if you want to follow along, fill in the notes. And, uh, you know, the great thing about following the notes, you'll know exactly when I'm landing the plane and ending the sermon. Um, I think that's one of the benefits. Honestly, I think that may be um, one of the maybe top three benefits of sermon notes. You know exactly where I'm at in terms of time, right? So if we're like 40 minutes in and I'm like halfway through my notes, it's a really, really long day, all right? Anyways, all right, good to see you. Normally during the Christmas season, you know, pastors uh, generally make their way back to Matthew or Luke um, because these gospels get a lot of attention, and and rightfully so. They have different perspectives uh, on the nativity and Christ coming into our world. Uh, Both give detailed accounts about the birth of Christ. But rather than looking at these common passages, I want to look at an uncommon passage during the Christmas season. Instead of seeing Christmas through the eyes of Matthew, if you remember, Matthew was a tax collector. So um, he was working for the Roman government um, on behalf of collecting taxes from his own people. And tax collectors were often known um, for ripping people off. So uh, he was probably very shrewd, very harsh. um, very um, had authority, and so Matthew was invited by Jesus to be one of his disciples. And then we we have this this gospel by Matthew. Uh, Luke, we know that Luke was not a, uh, a Hebrew; he was not Jewish. He was a Gentile, and he was a physician. He was a doctor. He's very intelligent, very bright, and he was um, funded by Theophilus. Uh, to go out and, and really investigate the life and ministry of Jesus. So he went out and he, he compiled oral accounts and, and he heard personal testimonies um, about people that maybe were healed by Jesus or heard his teachings or were eyewitnesses to the resurrection. So we're not going to look at those two. We're going to go, we're going to see the Christmas story through the eyes of the Apostle Paul. One verse that tells us the remarkable story of Christmas, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 says, For you know... The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. I want us to unpack this verse one at a time. Here's point number one. Jesus is the grace of God. The word grace in the New Testament, it's the word uh, charis. It means free or undeserved. This is why you can't earn it. Because it's not something that's based on performance. Not, it's not what you can do for God. 
It's what God in Christ has done for you. The word grace appears 156 times in the New Testament. It appears over 100 times in the Apostle Paul's writings. The word grace is a key word in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9. We spent four weeks early on this year uh, talking about stewardship and generosity, and we, we kind of took a look at those two passages. And uh, that word grace pops up time and time again, eight times in two chapters. But the grace of God in this verse, in verse 9, is referring to the person of Christ. Jesus is the embodiment of grace. Sometimes we just think in terms of graces, it's something that Jesus gives. No, it's who he is. Turn to your neighbor and say, grace is who Jesus is. There we go. Good job. Good job. It's not just what he gives. It's who he is. He's the perfect picture of grace. He is the embodiment of grace. He is the source of all grace. He created this world by his grace. He sustains the universe by his spoken word and by, by his grace. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 12 says, for the grace of God has appeared. Someone say, appeared. The grace of God has appeared, right? That right there is grace. That God broke silence and sent his son Jesus. It says, bringing salvation for all people. I think that's the key word, all right? Whether you live in Afghanistan, or you live in Australia, or, or North Korea, or United States, wherever you live, the gospel, salvation of Christ is for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Did you notice the, 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 the dual impact here? The grace of God appears, which is none other than Jesus, and this grace brings salvation, and guess what it does? It brings change in the lives who embrace Christ by faith. When you encounter Christ, there must be spiritual transformation. There has to be a jettison of your old life, a jettison of your sin, the darkness in your past, and you must cling and, 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 and treasure Christ above all else. The gospel should shape you. If you find Christ, but there's no fruit, there's no change, there's no transformation, have you really found Jesus? Because God's grace appears, bringing salvation, and it trains us, right, to live right, to live for Christ. Paul says the grace of God has appeared 2,000 years ago. Grace stepped onto the stage of human history. You know, you know I'm an ESV guy, so I'm just going to say it on the outset. Some of you might be like, why are you prefacing your statement? Because it's important to me, right? Because I believe when it comes to translations, you know, um, I believe a, a literal word-for-word -word translation is so helpful, right? It's so helpful and beneficial. But I do like, and I, I recently read this recently, I thought, man, that is so good. It's not a translation. Eugene Peterson, it's just kind of his paraphrase of the Bible. But um, um, actually, hold on. I, I'm, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. Hold on, hold on, hold on. 2,000 years ago, I'm going to come back to Eugene Peterson in a moment, all right? You guys okay with that? Okay, good. I thought that was like where I was going in my notes, and I'm like all messed up. Um, 2,000 years ago, grace stepped onto human stage. 
Someone has said, the heavens were tearing open. Finally, created earth would meet its maker. It's the greatest single event outside of the resurrection. It split our calendar into B.C. and A.D. Luke tells us about the significance of his birth. Luke chapter 2, verses 8 to 11. It says, in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. You see, the good news is that God uh, breaks silence for 400 years between Malachi and Matthew. God was silent. There was no prophetic word, no revelation, no light. And then this angel gives this announcement. Great joy for all the people. Here's what the angel is telling us. Here's what God's telling us. God doesn't leave us in the dark. He's not leaving humanity in the dark. During a therapy session, there was a 12-year-old boy, blind from birth, who said, I decided after being lost once and finding my way back that the worst thing that could happen to a person isn't being blind. The worst thing that could happen to a person is to be lost, to lose all sense of direction and not know where to go. If I had only one wish... I wouldn't wish to see. I'd wish to know where I'm going. See, people are lost. People are lost in our culture and they don't even know it. People take life for granted. Listen, life is temporal. Life is fleeting. I mean, it just seems like yesterday. Me and my wife, we were going to summer camp in high school, you know? And now I, I, got, I got teenagers going to summer camp. I got teenagers in high school. My oldest is in college now. Like, life goes by so fast, in a blink of a moment. This is why James says, life is like a vapor. It's like a mist. You know, if you go to a restaurant and you're enjoying a good meal, I don't know about you, I like Mexican food, you know, you're out in a patio of a nice Mexican restaurant and you feel that mist, maybe on a hot day, that mist feels good, doesn't it? It kind of hits you briefly and then you're expecting like you need more mist. That's what life is like. It is so brief. It hits you and then it's gone. People are living in darkness. People are spiritually lost, and they need Jesus. We talk about how Jesus was you know, born in a manger without even perhaps recognizing what a manger is. A manger was a, a feeding box. It was a trough for cattle, usually filled with unsanitary weed and oats and all kinds of stuff. Cattle would go to the trough and put their dirty, stinky, full of snot, noses into the cattle trough. It's not a, exactly an ideal place to take care of an infant, right? Anybody got a small little baby? You got a feeding trough in your living room, right? I mean, that's, this, but listen, that's where God became a man. The first people who got an invitation to see Jesus, they were not the religious people. They were not the religious leaders. They were not some royals or politicians. The gospel, the, the gospel was, was first announced, proclaimed. The invitation was given to shepherds. You know, today in, in all the messages, you know, you say, oh, the shepherds, you know, they're the heroes of the story. No, they were the zeros of the story. 
They were the outcasts of society. Ceremonially, they were unclean. They couldn't go to the temple unless they, you know, unless they obeyed the laws of Moses and they took time to get ceremonially, ceremonially clean. They were the outcasts. They were the nobodies. And then later on in the Christmas story, the, the wise men from the east, they bring these extravagant gifts and they were not just three kings from Orient R. They were more powerful than kings. They decided who would actually become the kings of the Parthian Empire. In short, they were among the most influential, learned, and powerful men in the world. I don't believe there were just three. We don't know how many there were, right? Some people say three wise men, three magicus, three gifts. Well, that's a good guess, right? I think there was an entourage, a massive entourage of them. Why? Because Herod and the religious leaders, it says that all Jerusalem was troubled. I mean, all Jerusalem, it was just completely, table turned upside down, people were in a ruckus, they didn't know what was going on. So I want you to think, influential, learned, powerful men, they were invited by a star to see Jesus. So you have the shepherds connected to the angel, you have the star connected to the magi, from the highest in the world's esteem to the lowest, all were invited to come to Jesus. And that's the point of the Christmas story. God invites you to come to him. He's long-suffering, he's kind, he's patient, and he's waiting for you, and he's working on you. Maybe he's using a spouse. Maybe he's using a child. Maybe he's gonna use a grandchild to bring you to faith in Christ. Listen, life is short. It is appointed for men to die once, and then the judgment And when we stand before God on judgment day, we stand with open hands. We bring nothing before God. We are stripped clean. We stand before God. Accountable, no excuses. You know, death doesn't give a warning. There's no signal. It is uninvited. It comes unexpected. It comes for the rich. It comes for the poor. Death is coming for you. And you better be ready to meet your maker. You better be ready to meet the savior of your soul, the lover of your soul. God doesn't leave us in the darkness. Matthew chapter four, 15 and 16 says, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. That is Jesus. He's the mega light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. A savior is born who is Christ the Lord. God broke into our world and he sent his son Jesus, the greatest gift to be our savior. He came out of love. He came with grace to transform our lives. He came to be with us. Remember what the angel told Joseph in a dream in Matthew chapter one, 21 to 23. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Christmas is about the grace of God. Christmas is about Emmanuel, God with us. The story of Christmas is about God breaking into our world, wrapping himself in human flesh, being our high priest, being tempted in every way, 
yet without sin, living that sinless life, dying in our place and saving us by his grace. Jesus is the grace of God that appeared 2,000 years ago. He came, he lived, he died, he rose again, and he's coming back someday. That's Christianity in a nutshell. John chapter one, verse one says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And now who is this word? In verse 14 of John one, it flushes that out. It tells us who the word is, the logos. And the word, the logos, became flesh and dwelt among us. Un- underline that dwelt among us. Literally, he tabernacled with us. He took upon flesh. He took upon humanity. God incarnate. God, Jesus, the Son of God, became a man. And it says, John says, we've seen his glory. Glory as as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. What I was saying earlier about Eugene Peterson, you know, he basically took the Bible and he did a paraphrase in his own modern day English wording. And I thought it was good what he said in John 1.14. He said, quote, Jesus became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Isn't that good? Jesus took flesh and blood and he moved into the neighborhood. What neighborhood did he move into? He moved into your neighborhood. He moved onto your street. He moved into my neighborhood. He moved into the neighborhood where your oikos lives. This is what he did. This is what he does. Grace appeared. Grace showed up. Jesus moves into the neighborhood. And this neighborhood is, is, is the mission field where we're trying to reach our friends and family and coworkers and neighbors with the gospel. The lesson there is that God meets all of us exactly where we are. God's grace meets you where you're at. God's grace can cover all of your sin. Stack your sin. Stack all the sin of your past, right? Mount up all the darkness, all the transgression, all the iniquity, right? Everything that you have done wrong, all your sins against God. And then I'll stack up God's grace. God's grace always stacks higher than our our personal sin. God's grace can cover our sin. God's grace meets you where you're at today. This is what I love about the gospel. God doesn't say, okay, here's what we're gonna do. First, I want you to clean up your life. Okay, first, I want you to do X, Y, and Z, and then, you know, if you clean it all up, then my grace will cascade into your life. No. You know what God does? God says, I want you to I want you to come and sit at my table. It's a free gift, it's a free invitation, and if you accept this gift by faith, by faith and repentance, and you come to me, you surrender all, you sit at my table, my table called grace, I will transform your life. That's the gospel of grace. This is what Christ can do in your life. If you're willing to accept the invitation, God says come to me and I'll forgive you. Come to me and I'll I'll extend mercy to you. You know, God's grace is truly amazing. When you think about it, God knows your name because he created you. He knows your story. God knows all about your past, everything you've ever done, and yet grace will continue to show up in your life. God will continue to pursue you in his love, to extend his mercy, to show you compassion, 
to give you a second chance because that's what God's grace does. God's grace is about second chances and third chances and fourth chances. The chances never run out. Paul goes on to say, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Because of Bethlehem, the king has been born. The God-man has come to earth. We have a savior in heaven. You know what Christmas begins, Easter celebrates. The child in the cradle became the king on the cross. But Bethlehem wasn't just the beginning. Jesus has promised a repeat performance. Look at Titus chapter 3, verse 11. It says, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. His first coming, you know, we know all the details, how the king ordered a census. Two teenage parents were forced to travel. Uh, Mary, who was pregnant with the Son of God, had to travel 80, 90 miles on a donkey. The inn was full. The hour was late. The angels first proclaimed the gospel to lowly shepherds. A star guided the magi. Mary and Joseph held their firstborn son. As they're in a little grotto cave next to a feeding trough, they hold the Son of God in their arms and they gaze upon the face of God. That's his first coming. His second coming, Acts chapter 2 tells us, there's going to be no silent night. No silent night. The skies will open, the trumpets will blast, and a new kingdom will begin. Notice what it says in Matthew 24 verse 30. Then will appear in heaven. The sign of the Son of Man. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. The Bible tells us that we are victorious in Christ because of what he secured. What he secured on that Good Friday. And what he ultimately secured by rising again the third day. He conquered the grave and hell and and sin and death and condemnation. But the Bible says at the end of the age, Christ is coming back. The skies are going to open and Christ is going to descend on the clouds. And he's going to place his feet on the Mount of Olives. And there he's going to set up his kingdom, the millennial kingdom for a thousand years. We know at the end of the age, Christ is coming back. That is our hope. This is what the Apostle Paul is saying. Waiting for our blessed hope. See, as believers, we're not wallowing in despair. We're not, we're not wondering what's going to happen. No, no, we know the end of the story. We know that there's hope. There's hope in the distance. Here's point number two. Jesus is the incarnate Son of God. If you go back and you look at 2 Corinthians 8, 9, Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So first point, Jesus is the grace of God. And then he goes on, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. You know, sometimes we get it all confused. We think that the gospel is about us. We get very self-centered when it comes to the gospel. Oh, the gospel is about me. No, the gospel is about Jesus. It's about what he did on the cross. It's about the glory of God. It is about his grace on display for humanity, what he did on that cross for us. It says that Jesus was rich. He lived eternally in heaven. The, the Trinity, there was intimacy and communion. The, there, there was no deficiency. He, he did not need or want anything. They 
they enjoyed eternal fellowship and intimacy with one another. And the angels were worshiping him in the glory of heaven. And then Paul says, he was rich, yet for our sake, he became poor. He left the riches of heaven and he stepped into human history. He was born into poverty to two teenage peasants. One was a working class construction worker, laid in a manger, humbled himself, became a man, grew up in Nazareth, not very prominent, kind of a podunk type town. He had brothers and sisters. He spent the first 30 years working a blue collar job. And then he went into the ministry, spent three years without a place to lay his head. He ate at people's homes, he was invited, he built relationships with people. He started with a small band of followers, 12 in all. And that, that was a, a very diverse um, band of brothers, you could say. The crowds and the multitudes soon followed him. They hung on his every word. They followed him everywhere. Uh, a lot of the crowds, they just wanted the goodies. They just wanted the benefits, right? They, 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 they just wanted a sugar daddy in Jesus, right? It wasn't, they weren't looking to Jesus for like spiritual truth or, or um, you know, a right relationship with God. They, they just, they wanted something from him. And we know the end of his ministry, the Passion Week, leads us to the cross of Calvary where he dies on a cross and he pays our debt to God. Three days later, he conquers the grave. And because of the grave, he makes it possible for us to know God the Father. Jesus became poor at the incarnation. Jesus became poor at the incarnation. The word poor in, in the Greek language, it's an aorist tense. It's, it, it means in the past. It happened in the past. So Jesus became poor. When? In the past. When he took upon flesh. So he was rich who became poor when he humbled himself. And he became a man. And ultimately at death. Athanasius said, he became what we are that, we might, that he might make us what he is. Amen? I love that. Here's point number three. Jesus makes us righteous in him. If you're looking for your own righteousness, you will find none. If you are banking on righteousness connected to taking communion, maybe some Catholic tradition, you know, confirmation, right? If you're trusting the sacraments, if you're trusting, hey, I'm a pretty good person, God's gonna grade on a scale. Here's the deal, God doesn't grade on a scale. He grades based on the cross. That's what he does. You're, in, you're either in Christ or you're not in Christ. You either know him or you don't know him. You've accepted his grace and his mercy and his love or you have not accepted that. You've, you have rejected the greatest gift given to you, and that is the gift of Jesus sent from the Father. It was sent from the Father's heart to us. Jesus, only Jesus can make us righteous. This is what this verse tells, tells us at the very end, right? It says, for you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So the incarnation was for you. He took upon humanity so that he could represent you to God. He could go to the cross. And then Paul says, so that you by his poverty might become rich. I want you to think about this for a moment. His physical death was real life. His poverty was real riches. His worldly brokenness and weakness was real strength. His poverty for our riches, 
I just want you to think about that for the moment, for a moment. The incarnation for our riches, for our salvation, for our sins to be forgiven, his rejection for our acceptance, his death for our life. Now, why did Jesus come? Because we're poor. Because we're poor. We are spiritually bankrupt because we are unrighteous. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. Jesus, who is righteous, perfect in every way, died for unrighteous people. And the question this morning is, do you see yourself as unrighteous? Or do you see yourself as righteous, morally good, performance is not lacking, right? Surely God will accept me. Surely God will love me because I've done a lot of good. I've been good to the poor. I've, you know, social acts. I've done a lot of good things for people. Listen, when it comes to being righteous, it can only be found in Christ. Do you see yourself as righteous or as a sinner? I love this story by Donald Gray Barnhouse. He tells a story of an, of, uh, of an incident in the Spanish-American War in which an American citizen in Mexico was tried and found guilty of a crime and was sentenced to be executed by a firing squad. There was a military detachment of American soldiers down there on a diplomatic mission, and when this American citizen was placed in front of the firing squad, one of the American military officers ran up took an American flag and wrapped that American flag around that American citizen. The American military officer then turned to those in the firing squad and said, if you shoot this American citizen, you are bringing down upon you all the wrath and the authority of the United States of America. They were ordered to lower their guns and the prisoner was released. When it comes to the gospel, Instead of being clothed with the American flag, we're clothed with the righteousness of Jesus, right? We give Jesus our sin, he gives us his righteousness, and God sees us through Christ, and he sets us free, amen? Only Jesus is righteous, only Jesus can make us righteous. Jesus came to pay a debt that he did not owe, because we owed a debt we could not pay. That's the, nuts- that's the gospel in a nutshell. And-, and the amazing thing is, the gospel never gets old, It never gets boring, it never gets dated, never becomes irrelevant. It remains the same year after year after year. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In him, in Christ, faith in Jesus, we are righteous, we are accepted. We become a part of the family of God. We are forgiven. We are changed. In the Chinese language, the word for righteousness is a combination of two characters, the figure of a lamb and a person. The lamb is on top, covering the person. Whenever God looks at you, this is what he sees. He sees the perfect lamb of God covering you. You know, it's precious to proclaim Christ died for the world. I get the privilege to proclaim the gospel every week, right? I don't know where people are at spiritually, but I get to share the hope that that we can have in Christ, this hope that lasts forever, this hope beyond the grave. And I share week after week after week about the cross and about Christ's resurrection and how Christ died for the world, but it is sweeter 
to whisper, Christ died for me. Christ died for me. It was personal. He paid for all my sin. He took all my junk and he redeemed me and he set me free. Isaiah 53 verse five, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. With his wounds we are healed. The problem is we don't see ourselves as sinners. We actually see ourselves as righteous. I want to share a story with you real quick. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. I want you to follow along in your notes as I read this. He also told this parable. So a parable is an earthly story with a a heavenly point, right? He's driving home a spiritual point. So he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves. That's the key. Who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like the tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, let me stop real quick. Doesn't that sound like us at times? You ever play the comparison game? Man, compared to that person, I'm pretty good. That's, that's, that's a dangerous game to play. It's dangerous. Now, now what, look what he says. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, here's the climax of the story. I mean, Jesus just drops a bombshell. He says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You see the Pharisee, his eyes were up, his chest was out. He was playing the comparison game. I'm better than that man. And his heart is dripping with pride and self-righteousness. And then you have, on the, on the other hand, you have the tax collector. He's standing far off. He knows exactly who he is and what he's done. And isn't that truth applicable for all of us? We know who we are. We know what we've done. It's a picture of the gospel. We're far away, but Jesus brings us near to God. His eyes are closed, his hands beating his chest. He's begging for mercy. One sees himself as a saint. One sees, sees himself as a sinner. Here's the question. Who gets grace? The sinner does. If you think you have it all together, you won't understand God's grace. Sometimes God's grace isn't meant to be understood or explained. It's meant to be experienced. When you experience the grace of God, when you experience Jesus in all his splendor, all his glory, and, you, and you, the Bible says taste and see that the Lord is good, your life will never be the same ever again. If you think you have it all together, you won't understand God's grace. Who gets glory in this story? God does. Because with God, the way up is the way down. I ask you the question, why did Jesus come? Because we needed a savior, so God gave us the greatest gift. 
2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 15 says, Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Jesus is a gift that the Father gives to us. The Father sent the Son. The Father gave the Son. Jesus is this inexpressible, maybe your translation might say indescribable. You can't even describe, explain, express the greatness of Jesus. Paul says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. How is this possible? How is this possible? For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. God's grace is extended to us, and it makes it possible for us to know him. This gift of grace is hard to comprehend. I want to read Ephesians chapter 3, verses 17 to 18. And as I read this passage, I'm going to invite Kusha to come up. Ephesians chapter 3 says, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. How would you describe Jesus? You know, Jesus is all over the Bible. I want to take a few moments. I want to share with you how the scripture portrays Jesus in every book of the Bible. In the book of Genesis, he is the ram at Abraham's altar. In Exodus, he's the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he's the high priest. In Numbers, He's the cloud by day and fire by night. In Deuteronomy, he's the city of refuge. In Joshua, he's the scarlet thread outside of Rahab's window. In Judges, he's our judge. In Ruth, he's our kinsman redeemer. First and second Samuel, our trusted prophet, Kings and Chronicles, our reigning king. Ezra, our faithful scribe. And Nehemiah, he's the rebuilder of everything broken. And Esther, he's the faithful Mordecai sitting at the gate. And Job, he's our redeemer who lives. In Psalms, he's our shepherd In Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, he's our wisdom. In Song of Solomon, he's our bridegroom. In Isaiah, he's the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. In Jeremiah and Lamentations, he's the weeping prophet. In Ezekiel, he's the wonderful four-faced man. In Daniel, he's the fourth man in the fiery furnace. In Hosea, he's the picture of faithfulness. In Joel, he baptizes us with the Holy Spirit. 
In Amos, he's our burden bearer. In Obadiah, he's our savior. In Jonah, he's our great foreign missionary who takes the gospel to all peoples. In Micah, he's the messenger with beautiful feet. In Nahum, he's the avenger. In Habakkuk, he's the watchman who was ever praying for revival. Zephaniah, the Lord mighty to save. Haggai, the restorer of our lost heritage. Zechariah, an overflowing fountain. And in Malachi, he's the son of righteousness with healing in his wings. In the New Testament, in the Gospel of Matthew, he's the son of the living God. In Mark, he's the miracle worker. In Luke, he's the son of man. In John, he's the door by which all of us must enter. In Acts, he's the shining light that appeared to Saul on the road to Damascus. In Romans, he's our justifier. In 1 Corinthians, our resurrection. In 2 Corinthians, our sin bearer. In Galatians, he redeems us from the law. In Ephesians, he's our unsearchable riches. In Philippians, he's the supplier of our every need. In Colossians, he's the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. First and Second Thessalonians, he's our soon and coming king. First and Second Timothy, the mediator between God and man. In Titus, he's our blessed hope. In Philemon, he's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. In Hebrews, he's the great high priest. James, he's our great healer. First and Second Peter, he's the chief shepherd. In first and second, third John, he's the one who models the tenderness of love. And in Jude, he is the Lord coming back with his saints. In the book of Revelation, church family, he's the alpha and the omega. He's the beginning and the end. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. The Bible is all about Jesus. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Amen. Let's pray.